0: Hey guys, my name is Emily. If you're listening to this, you probably already know me, but some of you might not. Um, I recently decided to start this podcast really to just have a space where I could share about, you know, the things I've experienced in my own life and how I've been able to overcome them in hopes of helping others who may be going through something similar. Um, And I also really want to use this space to discuss, you know, all kinds of different topics, you know, social issues, spirituality, really anything um, pertinent that to what's going on in our world today. Um, and I'm sure some episodes will definitely be more serious than others. Even though I'm starting off with a pretty dark topic, I really hope to have some funnier, more lighthearted conversations on here in the future. So, today um, I'm actually going to share with you guys my story as a survivor of sexual assault. Um, I feel like my experience with sexual violence has really completely shaped my life honestly and you know really shaped what I want to do with my life Um, and it's really deeply influenced who the person that I am today. So I really wanted to begin this with being super open with you guys about it and I really hope that sharing my story helps you know reduce that stigma surrounding sexual assault. You know we hear about it all the time um, and you know we know so many survivors yet there's still you know this as a survivor you know you often feel very you know ashamed to talk about it and i really feel like that's you know not how things should be i really hope that we can end that stigma um and i really hope that it maybe even me sharing my story you know maybe encourages others to share their own stories too as well you know whenever they feel ready um i do want to give a content warning just because i am going to be discussing you know what happened to me in a good amount of detail and i really don't want anyone to listen to this, if they don't feel like they're in a good headspace to be hearing about, you know, such a sensitive topic discussed. So I just wanted to start out with that, and really get that out of the way. So if you go to UCF, um, you probably are familiar with the fraternity ATO, um, Alpha Tau Omega. It's their full name, um, and if you know of them, you probably know about their reputation because they've been involved with the rape of three different women since 2016. Um, I am actually one of those women, which is why I've decided to share my story with you guys. Um, and But for me to really, you know, it that this happened to me fall of my freshman year, fall of 2016. Um, but for me to really go into that, I have to kind of establish a little bit of background information um just for you to get an idea of like what I was going through before I came to college. Um so when I was actually when I was in high school at 16, I was sexually assaulted. Um I guess it could be described as a date rape type incident. Um there wasn't any alcohol involved. I mean, I was completely conscious for it. It was awful, obviously. Um but I really I mean, I don't want to go too much into detail with it, but It was something that really affected me in high school, and I honestly feel like it just consumed my life and consumed my outlook on life, honestly. Um, And I was really struggling in high school. I was diagnosed with PTSD and depression, um, but this was only after, I mean, I had barely told anyone for about a year, and even though it happened when I was 16. you know, no one in my family knew, it never really came out until I was a senior in high school, honestly, towards the end of my senior year, Um, and that was when, you know, my family had finally found out, which I didn't mean to tell them, but I had spoken with a doctor and decided to finally, you know, tell my doctors what had happened to me, and then, you know, I didn't realize that there's, you know, this policy where if you tell a doctor, you've been sexually assaulted and you're under 18, then they have to tell your parents they're obligated to. See, I guess this is like very common information. I don't know. I just did not know it at the time. Um, But I mean, looking back, I am thankful that, you know, I was able to have them know and aware of what my situation was because that was really when I was able to get help. Um, So I was in therapy, you know, leading up to college, trying to really just kind of kickstart this healing process, you know, get as far like make as much progress as they can before moving away to college in the fall. Um but honestly, I felt like for me going away to school in the fall was, you know, the the thing that kind of kept me going. It was I had felt like so stuck and, you know, surrounded by you know, all these reminders, all this darkness like being in high school um in regards to like what happened to me. So for me, you know, going away to school, I had a scholarship, I was super excited, you know, to have like a change in environment, a new space where I can just, you know, be in a completely new city, you know, new people and not really have to worry about all those other things that really just took over my life while I was like in high school. And so when I came to UCF in the fall, Um, I felt like I made friends pretty quickly, you know, just friends from your roommates or whoever, you know, just from going out and stuff. Um, I mean, I wasn't super close with anyone. I had just met them, obviously. But, um, I had a really good time, you know, when I first came to UCF and it kind of felt like, you know, the rainbows after the rain, you know, was everything perfect? No, but everything was at least a lot better than it had felt, you know, when I was in high school. Um, and I felt like I was finally getting the chance to kind of, you know, walk away from all that and have a chance to start over and, you know, put my sexual assault behind me. Um, so one of my favorite things to do when I first came to UCF was going out with my friends to different tailgates, um, or to tailgating at the different fraternity houses on game days, um, which I feel like is... Literally, every freshman's, like, favorite activity when they first come to school. Um, And so, in November of my freshman year, uh, I went to... It was an early morning tailgate. And remember, it started at, like, literally, like, 8 a.m., 9 a.m. So, my friends and I went together. Um, It was my roommate and I and then a few other girls. We started tailgating. You know, we went to one fraternity house first to drink a little bit there um but really the house that we'd spend the most time at was the ato house um i just i don't know for whatever reason like we just thought that that house was the most fun to hang out at so a lot of times at tailgates that was kind of where we spent a good amount of the time um you know in that period of my life the beginning of freshman year um so if you, I don't know if any of you guys have been to any tailgates, that's fraternity houses, but basically how it's set up is, you know, you go in, um, they have, I mean, at least how the ATO house was set up, there's a ton of different rooms, you know, all like the people's rooms who live in the house, um, are set up with bars. So, you know, you can just kind of go between room to room, talk to different people. Um, there's, they have pledges making, um, drinks and mixed shots, like, at all the bars, so it's literally just, like, you know, they're constantly making shots and handing them to you, um, and obviously, you know, no one's, like, forcing you to drink or anything, you know, I'm not gonna pretend, like, I was pressured into drinking, um, excessively, like, it was definitely, you know, me doing it on my own, but I will say, like, the culture of it, the way that it is, I mean, especially first coming to college, like, it definitely is, you know, at least in my experience with, like, the tailgates, especially with Greek life, like, it's very, the culture's very based on binge drinking. Um, And, you know, you're constantly being encouraged to drink more and getting handed more stuff, so it was always super easy to not really know. Um, Plus, you know, they're mixed shots, so it's like, you kind of tell yourself, oh, they're not, you know, as strong as a regular shot, but you're literally having one after the other after the other, like, for hours, um honestly like nonstop. So as you can see it's sounds pretty easy to obviously lose track of how much you're drinking. So um we had got to the ATO house probably around um I would say around like eleven or so, maybe ten, pretty early in the morning. Um and I had drank there with my friends, um, as with my roommate, um, but at some point I got separated from my friends, and I really just, I don't remember anything. Um, I don't remember getting separated from them. I don't, um, basically just, I remember drinking, having a good time, whatever, Um, but then everything just starts to go really fuzzy, and I don't remember, um, I mean, I blacked out. I don't know what happened, you know, after that initial, say, hour or so that I was there. Um, So when I woke up, I, was, I woke up in the study room of the ATO house. Um, it was later in the afternoon, um, and I woke up to a guy was standing over me, like, shaking me, like, um, and I didn't have any pants on. Well, I honestly had barely anything on, um, and I was bleeding from my genitals, and, you know, as soon as I actually woke up, um, the guy ran out of the room, and, I mean, I was just felt, you know, this immediate sense of panic, the way that everything felt like it was unfortunately a very familiar feeling, um, and I felt like I couldn't even, I had so much trouble processing it, like, it was just like, this cannot have happened to me, like, I can't have the, I can't do this again, I cannot deal with something like this again, um... And I knew the person who had woken me up. Like, even though I I really couldn't remember much, um, I just knew, you know, in my gut instantly that he was the one who had assaulted me and everything. Um, And I was honestly really feeling the effects of the alcohol still um, during this time. So, of course, you know, there's a lot of fear, panic. Honestly, I was really embarrassed. Um, And I'm like, literally, just, I remember just getting up, and the first thing I did was I, I got up and I locked the door to the room um and I just kind of like sat in there I got dressed you know trying to get my things together um but I mean I was terrified to leave that room like I just I honestly didn't know what I was gonna do um and then after maybe like 15 minutes or so I heard knocking at the door um and I was kind of hoping it would go away but you know the person they just kept knocking so I kind of decided, well, you know, you're going to have, you obviously want to get out of here. You obviously need to get out of here. So um, I opened the door a little and it was another member of the fraternity was at the door and, and he saw, I mean, he saw the state that I was in. I mean, I was, I feel like I didn't even, I wasn't even consciously aware that I had been crying, but I was crying and I was shaking and everything and I was just, honestly overwhelmed and he told me he was gonna go get his girlfriend to come help me because you know he obviously sees me in a very unstable state Um, so he got his girlfriend to come over to me and um, she she tried to help calm me down and she asked me a lot of questions You know, she was trying to figure out what had happened, and honestly, she seemed, like, very genuinely concerned. I was pretty thankful at the time that she was there to help me. Um, She had asked me, you know, are your friends here? Um, You know, do you know, is anyone, like, with you? And I said no, I don't know where everyone went. Um, She asked me, of course, like, do you remember anything? And, you know, I just told her, you know, how I woke up, but I really didn't remember anything. She asked me if I was in a sorority, um, which I'm not, by the way, in case anyone's wondering. Um, and she asked me if I thought I had been raped. And I just kind of remember sitting there in silence because, you know, to say yes meant to say it meant reopening this huge door in my life that I, I, I just really wanted to close away and get away from. Um, so I didn't want to say yes, but I also didn't, I knew I couldn't just say no either. So I told her I didn't know, but I knew something, you know, whatever took place. I was very, I was obviously was either unconscious or extremely drunk. Like I honestly, just based on all the context of situation, definitely was unconscious at least towards the end of everything. Um, and she had told me, okay, well, you know, if you think you can identify the person, um, walk, like, she basically walked with me over to a window, she said, like, everyone was outside now, because, like, the tailgate was basically over, um, and she showed me, you know, she's like, okay, everyone's outside, and she's like, do you recognize anyone here, and I told, and I pointed out the kid who it was, um, and she told me his name. Um, and that he was a pledge, and so she then had another member of the fraternity, um, she told me, you know, he's gonna walk you back to your dorm, because um, I lived on campus at the time, you know, not too far from, like, where all, like, the fraternity houses and everything are, so, um, they said they, he was gonna walk me home and everything and kind of, you know, discuss what had happened, So, of course, you know, obviously wanting to go home and really just wanting to get out of there. And, you know, I'm still feeling the effects of the alcohol. So I'm obviously still very drunk at this point in time, you know, trying to process all this stuff that's just happened. Um, So, you know, she introduces me to this other member who's going to walk me home. And um, so he walked me home. And I remember, you know, at first kind of just small talk... Um, but then when we got back to my dorm and we were outside of it he sat me down on the bench and told me you know we're gonna have to talk about what happened today and I mean I I was just still feeling really overwhelmed and I really didn't want to like go into everything at that point I honestly just wanted to be alone more than anything and so I told him you know I do want to talk about this like I'll tell you you know everything I can remember but I would rather us do this later, I just need to like go home and, you know, sleep it off and get the alcohol off my system, um, before really discussing this, so, um, he gave me his phone number, and, you know, he told me to text him whenever I was feeling ready to talk about everything, um, but then he also told me, he asked me to not tell anyone else about it, um, you know, he said, you know, we're, we're just want to handle this ourselves we're going to handle it internally we really don't want you talking about it with other people especially when we don't know the full set like you know the story yet so um which you know obviously you know in retrospect it's like well obviously you know a fraternity quote handling it themselves is not going to be the proper way to handle a such situation like that especially when they're telling when they're outright telling you you know do not tell anyone about this um so but for me you know whatever I want, I went home I went back to my um whatever I was back at my dorm and then you know several hours later when I was feeling you know finally sober um I texted him and you know I told him about how I woke up I told him I mean I remember kind of saying like you know like part of me like I don't I had even said you know I don't want to make this you know this huge deal but I really feel like what took place was wrong there and you know someone needs to be held accountable so he told me he was going to meet with the fraternity's president about it and um the kid himself who was a pledge at the time um and he told me you know they were all going to discuss it and hear all the sides whatever and so that was kind of where it left off um then the next day I reached out to him again um, and I asked him, you know, did you guys have this meeting? How did it turn out? And I was told back, what I was told was, you know, his response was literally sometimes, you know, we do things we regret when we're drunk. And, you know, then he went on to just basically telling me I need to be more careful when I drink in the future, which obviously like, it's very frustrating to be told that you know, like, literally to just have them completely dismiss it and put it on me. But at the same time, you know, I really I did not want to deal with this at all. Like, I just I was just come I had just come to college. um My parents were already so worried about me, you know, being in in college given my history already, and I just I didn't want this to be, you know, something that I had to just I just didn't want to deal with it honestly (laughs) um and I didn't have any like close I mean at the time yeah I had my friends my roommates but I mean I really didn't know them that well and I really didn't know them well enough to be talking about this and you know it was just kind of something I had really kept to myself and the only person who knew was the roommate who actually went with me to the tailgate because of course you know later on, just, like, where, what happened, you know, we got separated, um, and, yeah, she was the only one who knew, but, you know, her and I, um, and I'm really close with this roommate of mine, we're still roommates to this day, I love her, um, shout out to Michaela, like, the best person ever, um, incredible person who's helped me through so much, um, and for a long time, Michaela was the only person I had ever told, um, and I mean, even her, I, I don't know if I would have told it was more that, you know, she had asked questions, you know, later on in the day, and I even back then I didn't really go into detail about it. I just kind of told her how I woke up and stuff, but I never really brought it up again. Um, and so, kind of fast forward. Um, so I, I had this thing I was carrying with me like throughout my freshman year, and I really just tried to completely ignore it. I just tried to, you know, push it away deep inside me, you know, I felt like, honestly, yeah, ignoring it was the only way I was really, like, to me, that was honestly the only option at the time, and I just kept trying to, you know, ignore my body's cries for help, but, you know, eventually, you can only push it off for so long, Um, but really, the turning point for me was in August of 2017, so this is the summer following my freshman year, Um, it's almost a year after my sexual assault um with ATO it was I got a text um in a group chat and it was about how this girl it was headlines in the news about a girl being raped at the ATO house um during their New Year's in July party and I just well I remember I was literally at work when I got the news um and I remember having to run to the bathroom and throw up because it was like I just, like, had this overwhelming realization that, you know, this obviously wasn't an isolated incident with this fraternity, and I just felt so guilty. Like, I just, I mean, it's, I I really just feel so bad that I had never, I hadn't spoken up about what happened to me, and I hadn't pushed for, for it more, and I hadn't pushed to have something done about it, and I mean, I'm just so sorry still, like, to the other women who experienced this with them because, you know, of course I feel like if I had spoken up sooner, you know, maybe I could have stopped this from happening, and I mean, I just will forever wish that I would have spoken up sooner, but, you know, with the way, unfortunately, with the way healing is, and it's a very lengthy, nonlinear process, um, I just wasn't ready to for a long time, um, or for that year leading up to it, until, you know, I heard about that I wasn't the only one this was happening to, um, so I had kind of told myself, you know, you're gonna, I had convinced myself, okay, I'm gonna report this, um, and I decided really that summer, as soon as I heard the news, that I had to report this, um, and I kept kind of trying to tell myself okay you're gonna you're, you're gonna go in you're gonna go report it um but then I also didn't even know how I was going to I didn't know how anything worked I didn't really want to go to the police just knowing that I had really didn't have like I guess a lot of physical evidence it was more you know my testimony and the witness's testimony so um so I actually ended up going to so months later actually in January um so this is like a little over a year after my assault, um, in January of twenty eighteen, I decided um, to go to UCF's Victim Service Center, our Victim Advocate Center. I'm sorry, I don't know, I don't remember the exact name, but um, and I met with the victim advocate, and I told her, you know, everything I experienced and how I wanted to report it, but I really didn't know what the next steps were. So she had explained to me, you know, the different options, you know, going with the police, or the other option was reporting through the Title Nine office at my university. So um, to me, that was really what made the most sense. And also at the time, I still had the mindset of, you know, my family can't know about this. I don't want anyone, I don't want the people in my life to necessarily know about this, that I'm reporting this. Um, I mean, I just didn't want them to know what had happened to me at all. So, um, and viewing with the Title Nine office seemed like, you know, the best way to have some him held accountable, you know, even though there's only so much the university can do, I knew that I felt like going to the police was gonna honestly just be useless because of the lack of evidence that I had. Um, and unfortunately, I've had a lot of friends who have reported their assaults with the police and I've unfortunately never ever heard a good response back from them. like. Anyone I know who's reported something to the police like of that nature has always told me that they regret it and has always told me that they wish that they had never said anything, which obviously definitely kind of, you know, made me not have any interest in going down that route. So anyways, um, I decided to report it through the Title IX office. Um, so how it works when you have a Title IX investigation, they have a Title IX investigator who he meets with you, um, and then, you know, you're the Q student, I guess you would call it, they, um, refer to them as the defendant, um, and then they also meet with all the witnesses who are involved, so, um, initially, I honestly thought that, you know, so the witnesses that we're calling in was, it was going to be my roommate, who was with me earlier in the day, um, the Guy who initially found me, and then his girlfriend who had helped me, and also the other fraternity member who walked me home. Um, So, initially, I honestly thought, of course, like I thought the girl who had helped me on the day of the incident, you know, I really thought that her testimony would hopefully help my case. Um, But I was completely wrong, unfortunately. Um, See, I didn't really know. So, what I learned was that apparently she had just recently been chosen, like, right as I started this investigation, she had just been chosen as ATO's sweetheart. Um, So basically, she's, like, the one woman who represents this fraternity um, at my school, and now I am having an investigation where she is obviously, you know, one of the witnesses. So she had... She chose to, you know, protect herself and her boyfriend's fraternity over the truth. She basically told the Title Nine investigator, she had no idea that anything of, like, violent nature had happened to me. She told me, like, she told the um investigator, you know, that she couldn't imagine, like, if she had known that something took in place like that, then she would have done something, and, like, she can't, She kept, like, you know, the investigator said she was actually crying in this interview saying like oh I can't understand how um you know I would never have like left another woman like that if I knew that it happened to her and you know all this stuff um and reading her testimony was obviously really I mean I was honestly just in disbelief when I read it because she had literally said like you know everything I had said about her my interaction with her wasn't true she said she had no idea anything had happened to me she had never helped me identify him like basically completely telling them that i'm making this up um and you know the other disturbing thing about this girl is she was actually president of a sorority at my school seda tau alpha and you you also get to bring a support person with you during each of your title nine um interviews and she even brought um the chapter's advisor as her support person so she's literally i mean honestly it was like heartbreaking and terrifying to me that this woman who would just willingly lie to protect a rapist was literally leading other women and being responsible for other women and i just it was just so hard for me to wrap my head around like i just i cannot imagine protecting some like that which i mean i guess at the end of the day she was really just protecting herself too which I kind of learned later on, um, and so yeah, um, I was having trouble because, you know, obviously the other two witnesses who are also members of the fraternity obviously are, did not testify in my favor as well, um, based on what they said in it. Really, the only person, the only witness who was kind of, I guess, like on my side um, was my roommate, but unfortunately, she really didn't have any interaction with the situation at all you know they had just called her in literally because we were together in the morning that was it um so the title nine investigation so how they work is after they interview everyone they determine if there's a preponderance of evidence that you know something against student conduct took place so for me it was a preponderance of evidence that I was sexually assaulted while too intoxicated to give him consent um and they found that um, so basically the investigation actually found that, yes, there was enough evidence based on everything that people said in their interviews that I would have been, um, that I was showing obviously signs that I would have definitely been too intoxicated to give consent. And so the Title IX office sent um, my case to the UCF Student Conduct Office, and the Student Conduct Office is where they actually hold a hearing. Um, it's kind of like the court part of it, I guess where they determine if you know this accused student's actually guilty um and it was frustrating because i had really wanted the whole fraternity to be held accountable because you know they had their leadership know about this this kid was literally a pledge they could have just gotten rid of him he wasn't even a true like member at this time and they just kept him around anyways and they literally helped cover everything up so obviously, you know, I wanted the fraternity responsible as well. Um, or re- held responsible as well, but um they had told me, you know, the director of student conduct told me that because, you know, well, one it had been almost 2 years at this point by the time they fi- I finally had my hearing, it'd been almost 2 years since it happened, so obviously the leadership of the fraternity is different, so they couldn't really hold them accountable. And then they also told me, you know, there really wasn't any rules against how the fraternity handled my situation because, um, you know, if a faculty member has a student tell them, you know, I was sexually assaulted or, you know, even I was sexually harassed, whatever it may be, um, they're required to report it to the university's Title IX office. However, if you're a leader of a student organization, you have no obligation to report if you're told that one of your members raped someone which I just think is ridiculous that that's how the rule works. But, you know, I also, I mean, I understood that the director's hands were tied. Like, I knew that he literally couldn't do anything in his own power to hold them accountable. Um, and, oh, so something else I want to talk about is, um, I was a few months into my Title IX investigation. Um, I started in January, and then by April another story had come out, um, that another girl was raped at an ATO party, and it was, this time it wasn't at their house, it was at, like, this off-campus house that a bunch of, like, members of ATO, like, have owned for years and years and years. They literally refer to this house as the meat factory, um, to give you an idea of, you know, how lovely these boys are, um, and that's where, the fraternity would hold like all their unofficial parties, you know, the parties that weren't necessarily like, sanctioned with the university. So, um and so hearing about this other girl's case, you know, like and I mean not I kind of goes without saying, but you know, the other two cases were also involved, you know, alcohol was of course involved as well. Um and so honestly like I felt like my heart was just shattered when I heard about this news, like, I felt like, I mean, a lot of me felt like what I was doing was so useless, like, I was going through all this, you know, because I was so, I did not want this to happen to another woman, like, that was honestly, like, the sole reason why I had begun reporting was because I could not live with the idea of this continuing to happen to other women with this fraternity, and. In the time that I started reporting it, like, literally another woman, a third woman, had come forward about something that had happened to her there. And, like, it was just, it just blew my mind that this fraternity had literally three, literally had had their members, or whatever, members, former members, you know, whatever you want to get technical in it, like, um they literally had three different victims, three different women were raped at different parties that they've had in literally a year and a half span, and they were just getting away with it, you know. Yeah, they were getting in trouble for having, you know, they would get in trouble for providing alcohol or, you know, for having the unofficial party, whatever, but they weren't actually being held accountable at all for the actual, you know, these women being sexually assaulted. And, I mean, like, part of me felt like, oh, my gosh, like, what, what is even the point of this that I'm doing, but I mean, also I feel like the other part of me felt like, you know, this is why you have to come forward, this is why you have to keep going with this because this is just gonna keep happening and something needs to be done. So, um, fasting forward to when I had the hearings, um, so my student conduct hearing, so how student conduct hearings work is there's, um, you sit in a room, full of, it's a pretty small room, it's literally, you know, honestly, yeah, not very big room at all, and you sit at a table, um, this big square table with, there's a panel of two faculty members and then two students who are kind of, like, the jury, I guess you could say, and they basically are the ones who, you know, question everyone in the hearing, and they, um, they're the ones who also decide you know if the student is guilty or not and then they also decide you know what sanctions to give that student if they are guilty um and then on the other side of the table you know kind of diagonal away from me is that's where the student sits with his support person and then i sit obviously with my support person besides me and then the director is there in the room but he really doesn't participate in the hearing he kind of just oversees to make sure you know all the proper procedures are followed um So, I was actually given the option to, um, you could, with how UCF does their hearings, you could either, you know, participate in the hearing, be in the room with them um, while they're doing the questioning of everything, or you could be um, in another room just watching it on TV or even, you know, listening just by phone. But um, the thing is, if you did it that way, you really couldn't actively participate in the hearing um like yes they would see your side of the story through the title invest the title nine documents but you know you wouldn't be sitting there in the room you know sharing your side of the story um so I mean knowing that I had these options of course I really like I just didn't even know if I was going to be able to sit in a room with him for all day long like that like I just I didn't know I felt like I didn't even know if I was it was possible for me I didn't know if I'd be able to do that without you know being able to stay calm and, you know, not just running out of the room crying. Um, and so, but I felt like, you know, I had to do it. I had to be there in that room because he's going to be sitting in that room telling his story and making him seem to be, you know, obviously, you know, this very wholesome, great person. And, and if I'm not there too, you know, I, I felt like I needed to be there. Um, they needed to see, like, how it was affecting me. They needed to see me fighting there for myself. Um, so I decided I would be in, present in the room, um, and so he brought, so he hired a lawyer to be his support person, um, and I, my support person was actually my victim advocate, Jessica, which, a shout out to Jessica, she's, like, was so amazing and helped me so much during this hearing, like, I'm so thankful that Um, I was able to have her help throughout this whole process because I really just made it so much easier on me. And like, I don't know if I could have done it without that extra support, honestly. Um, and so, and also how it works is like technically, you know, your support people and can't technically ask you questions directly. But what they can do is, you know, so me and the kid, like the defendant, whatever, my rapist, um, we're able to write down questions to have like the panel ask the other person. So we write it down, the question, then the panel looks at it. And if they think it's an appropriate question, then they will ask you the question, which is kind of weird because you're all sitting at a little table together anyways. Um, I honestly don't feel like it would even been that different if he was straight up asking me the questions himself but really, you know, of course he's having his lawyer write questions, you know, for him to ask, so that was super fun, Um, but anyways, so let's go to how, like, this hearing went, so I remember just walking into the hearing, and, you know, I haven't seen this kid since, you know, the day of my assault, and I just remember feeling his eyes on me, like, it felt like the heaviest thing in the world, I don't know how to explain it, but, like, even just him like looking at me like i just felt like i remember you know my heart was racing i started sweating i just i'm like honestly freaking out um sitting in this chair like i couldn't even look up i just remember just sitting there looking down because if i looked up and i saw him like i didn't know what i could do and i just sat there with my head down as like you know they began giving the introductions and explaining you know how it's going to go um and it starts off, you know, they have him present his side and then have questions. My, I present my side, then followed by questions. And then they have each of the witnesses go, followed by all the questions. And then the last person to present is the Title IX investigator who kind of just, you know, discusses his summary of what he found in the case. So, um, so, during the, so the hearing began with him giving his side of the story first they had him start out by introducing himself you know he told everyone he's a pre-med student he's like already has already been accepted to medical school or whatever he was applying i don't even know i don't remember but basically he was a pre-med student he volunteered with kids with cancer in his free time with just kind of you know obviously making himself out to be like the best person ever um definitely like you know trying to get their empathy as well um and i just remember like i hated it so much like like i was sitting there with my head down but i just i hated hearing all of this it was so and then when he actually when they asked him can you know describe what happened that day i mean that's just when i was just like overwhelmed with anger honestly like hearing him talk like hearing these lies And then the way that he just talked about me and everything, like, it was just, it was awful, honestly. I remember my victim advocate, you know, she kept writing me little reminders, you know, to keep breathing. Because I was just sitting there, like, literally not breathing, like, in shock, like, you know, not even understanding how I was still in that room. And, um, you know, hearing him, honestly, his words were just, like, literal knives, like, I hated hearing him talk about the way, you know, he would say, Oh, you know, she was so pretty, you know, we had been flirting all day, she was coming on to me all day, you know, what was I just supposed to say no to this girl who's been flirting with me all day, blah, 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 you know, and, you know, it was all lies, of course, you know. I had had no interaction with this guy at all, you know, from any point in time of day that I can remember, which means, you know, if, I mean, I really don't believe there was any flirting at all, honestly, like, I do not know this kid, Um, but even if there was, you know, I would have literally already been, like, blacked out by this point anyways, so it wouldn't have even really mattered, Um, and I just was so, like, infuriated listening to his words, but, you know, when you're, as a victim, we're expected to be, you know, calm and composed, we're supposed to be meek and amicable, and, you know, likable to everyone in this room, and, you know, you can't lose your temper, because, you know, we have to be this, people's perfect idea of what a victim should be like, and they want victims to be, like, these, you know, harmless, injured deer, but, you know, that's not what we are, and I was just so angry listening to everything, but, like, and I'm just, like, sitting there thinking, like, oh my gosh, like, I hate this, I hate this kid, like, I, and I was so angry and then all like, but everything in me was kind of just telling, like screaming, you know, enough. Like this, it, I'm done, like this is enough. Like I'm not going to let this kid keep talking and, you know, try to get these people's empathy and, you know, spewing all these lies. Like, and I feel like when they, I finally heard them say like, Emily, could you please describe in your own words what happened that day? Um, you know, even though when I first came into that room, I was terrified for when they would ask me to talk because I, I thought I was just going to open my mouth and nothing would come out. I felt like I could barely breathe. How was I going to talk and, you know, present my side of the story and defend myself. But I mean, honestly, I was completely wrong because by the time, you know, after I'd heard every, you know, him talk and give his side of things, like I was so, I mean, yeah, I was just done. I had enough of it. And I feel like, you know, my anger overcame the fear of being, you know, sitting down at a table next to my rapist who's just talking about me and talking about the stuff, you know, looking at me. And so, I mean, I told my side of the story and, you know, I feel like I was very firm in how I told the side of my story and he was literally, you know, staring at me the whole time and I hated it, but it was, I really felt like I did everything I could, like, And honestly, I was so proud of myself after that, you know, to be able to to speak up. And it was very empowering to be able to, you know, like, yes, this person completely shaped my life and my future and all this, but here, but I am here now and his future is in my hands and the power of my words is what is gonna affect his future. And, you know, as terrified as I felt, you know, in that moment, you know, I had to remind myself, you know, he's the one who's terrified right now And um, so after, you know, I gave my side, you know, they had all the witnesses speak. Um, They had um, the panel, you know, they deliberate together and figure out, you know, they kind of decide who's going to be guilty, if he was guilty or not. And then they decide, you know, what the sanctions would be if they were. So um, in that time where I was, I mean, we could have gone home or we could stay, um, which I wanted to stay and like, be there and present when they read aloud you know the verdict of course because if not I was just gonna have to wait till the other option is to go home and just get a phone call you know and I didn't want to do that so for those I mean those hours felt like forever which I know like I kind of sound dramatic saying like oh my gosh these hours felt like the longest in my life when I know if you report your assault like through the traditional court system you wait years before you find out which it's just a whole other thing that I hate, but um, I remember, you know, they sat us all down and back in the room after several hours, and um, they read aloud his the verdict, and he was found guilty, and he was given disciplinary dismissal, so he was kicked out of UCF, and I remember just being, like, shocked, like, and so... I mean, I was so happy, you know, I finally was able to get, like, some justice for myself and, like, it finally was just, like, this relief that I felt for the first time since I don't even know how long, like, um, and even though, you know, I never went back and, you know, reported what happened to me in high school, like, I felt like this, doing this helped, you know, it helped me with kind of feel resolved in both situations, honestly. Um... But that feeling, you know, only lasted for a few weeks because I was at work and I got an email from Student Conduct and they let me know, the email, I remember reading it like a thousand times, they told me that the hearing was being remanded, which basically means, so they told me that there was a technical issue with the recording of the hearing and you know, they need to have a record of all the hearings on they have to have a record recorded of all the hearings to actually, you know, just to have it on file, and because, you know, the student filed an appeal, you know, you have to have the appeal and officer review the video of the hearings to make sure, you know, there was no problems with the procedure, everything was done fairly, whatever, um, which the, they couldn't go back and do that because, you know, they just couldn't access the file for whatever reason, um, which honestly, like, to me felt very shady, like, I had already been told by several people you know the reason why this fraternity never gets in trouble is because you know they just have so much money and they put so much money into the school and like that's why like ATO it like always gets away with it and you see all the other fraternities get kicked off campus for far less but then you have this one that's literally just going around raping women um and they get no consequence and so of course I'm like feeling very paranoid you know they tell me that my hearing like my the file of our hearing was deleted um And with it being remanded, it means that they have to have a whole new hearing. But the thing is, this whole new hearing, you know, it had to be a completely new hearing, as in literally, you know, a new panel. And the new panel would have no idea what the previous one chose. So I was pretty much told that the most difficult thing I had ever done in my life, it suddenly just didn't count. And I would have to do it all over again. And, like, I just... I, like, I had no idea, you know, if, is he gonna be found guilty again, you know, now he has just, like, this second chance to come up with, you know, whatever new stories, or whole new defense, whatever, he can just orchestrate, like, it's almost like he got a practice <laughs> round, essentially, um, and I was so terrified, like, knowing that they were gonna have the second hearing, and that was also the point in time when, I remember hearing this news, like, I remember just feeling like, oh, like, I just wanted my parents Like, I remember feeling like this is so unfair. Like, I just want to, like, call my mom and dad and say, like, you know, look what these people are doing to me. You know, look what they're making me do again. And so um, I finally had kind of decided then, you know, I was going to tell my parents before I had the second hearing. Um, And so I, um, we had the second hearing held a few months later about two months later and um it was completely different than the first one you know honestly like my panel from the first hearing was great like they asked him all the best questions you know they asked like all like the holes in his story you know they basically called it out but this panel honestly like the second panel I had was I'm sorry but they just were pretty terrible with as far as um you know asking him questions like He would literally say, oh, you know, I never said that, but the Title IX interviewer, he like was writing down things during my interview that I didn't actually say and all this stuff. And then the panel was just being like, oh, okay, cool. we will make a note of that. And then I am the one who had to stand up and say, "Um, actually, if you see at the bottom of every page of your Title IX interview, you're required to sign off on what the investigator wrote down, you know, confirming, yes, this is what I meant to say. And it's like, and then I also had the Title Nine interviewer um, explaining consent to them because the faculty members, um, this time it was two male faculty members and two female students, whereas the last hearing was, you know, one male and female faculty member and one male and female student. And the faculty members really take, like, the lead as far as how the hearing goes, so um I honestly just felt like the two men who I had as the members for my meeting or for this hearing, like, were really not as great at, you know, interviewing him and, like, getting to the bottom of things as the last panel had been. So I was, of course, like, kind of panicking throughout this hearing, like, oh, my gosh, like, he's just going to get off. Like, he's getting this second hearing and he's going to be let off, like, free, really. Um, And, you know... I'm like the one sitting there, like having them reread the definition of consent, because like literally these faculty members are like, oh well, if she was flirting with him, like doesn't that mean that, you know, it wasn't that considered consent? And I'm like, first of all, like we, I did not flirt with him. You guys have no evidence that I did. That's literally what he just is lies he's coming up with. And second of all, like if you keep reading the definition of consent, you know it says none of these things are actually. None of these affirmations of consent can be applied if the person's literally like intoxicated or incapacitated. So it was very frustrating for me, you know, going through that second hearing and having it dealt with the way that it was. Um, but I mean, I like I was very surprised to learn like he they actually found him guilty a second time, and you know I was so happy, you know, the truth still prevailed. To, and truth still, you know, comes out at the end. And I mean, I was honestly shocked that he was found guilty a second time because the way that the hearing went, like I really did not think that they were gonna hold him accountable. Um, which, and I'm thank, and I just wanna also say like, I'm so thankful for the Director of Student Conduct. Like he was, he helped make, you know, I felt like he did everything he can to try to make that an easy process for me. Um, and how people treat you when you're reporting stuff really makes such a big difference in how you go through it and I was very like happy to have you know he was someone I I trusted my case in his hands you know even with you know all these other things going on like I definitely was thankful to have him you know overseeing everything um so moving on um I was obviously very relieved, like, my rapist was being accountable, being held accountable for his actions, but at the same time, you know, I knew all these other fraternity members who helped cover it up and, you know, completely defended him, were still obviously, you know, active in the organization, and I also knew that every single member of that fraternity was aware of what happened to me and, you know, obviously defended my rapist. Um, I mean, I even had friends, a friend in the fraternity who, you know, I mean, I didn't really, at the time, I didn't really know if he knew about what happened to me. Like, I wasn't really sure if it was something that was like discussed within the whole fraternity or not at the time, but I figured out it was, <laughs> he had basically told me, um, that, you know, he didn't want to pick sides, like use those exact words. Well, I don't, you know, I don't want to pick sides. And it's like, you know, you either think that I'm completely lying um, or you're defending a rapist, and, I mean, not, needless to say, you know, those people aren't really your friends anyways, but, you know, I was just, I ne- felt like I needed to raise awareness about how dangerous it is to have, you know, this, like, you know, quote, brotherhood that is so dangerous for women to be around, instead like, especially in settings with alcohol, and I felt like, you know, the other two cases had been, you know, publicized in the news because they went, um, they reported through the police, but, like, my case had never been brought to the news because, you know, it was just done through Title Nine, and, you know, because of the student privacy laws, you know, none of that is, like, you know, given out, is shown to the public, really. It's considered confidential. Um, so I decided... Um, to reach out to the Orlando Sentinel, and I sat down, um, with a journalist, Annie Martin, and she, I was so thankful she decided to meet with me, and I shared my story with her, and, you know, I gave her access to the different documents that, um, you know, is kind of evidence, you know, what they found with the Dino 9 investigation, and I was able to get, let the media see, you know, a side of a Title IX investigators that they really normally don't get access to um and then so she wrote an article you know describing my story um I know if you like want to read it for whatever reason it's on the Orlando Sentinel it's titled UCF student says she was assaulted at same frat house where other rapes reported um and you know obvious before I I go into I know like the title of the articles you know kind of not the greatest, but because of, you know, the journalist laws, they have to phrase things a certain way, you know, they have to say student says she was assaulted, they can't just say, you know, student was assaulted, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I was really thankful, honestly, with how she, with what she did with the article, and like, she wrote it so well, and I was so thankful that she listened to my story. Um, but, you know, in the article, she actually interviewed the CEO of like, the national um, you know, the national organization for ATO, um, and, you know, he completely distanced the fraternity members from my sexual assault, and, you know, the two other women as well, and he literally said, you know, quote, he wanted to avoid allowing a few members' wrongdoings to tarnish the entire chapter's reputation, and reading this just obviously infuriated me, because, you know, is it really only a few bad members when, the entire fraternity supported the man who raped me, you know, in addition to the several members who actively helped cover it up. And then you just have to ask yourself, you know, I mean, at this point of all the fraternities that you see up, what type of men are joining this fraternity? You know, this fraternity now was known as, you know, like, literally, like, the rapey fraternity at my school. It was known, the fraternity had a reputation for being rapist. and, you know, you still have men, of course, joining it, and it's like, I'm sorry, but you definitely need to like question. You know, what kind of person would you know choose to join? I mean, if I was a man, like, if I was a man joining fraternity, I mean, that sounds kind of funny. But you know, if I was a man joining a fraternity, like, I would think you would not want to have one that's you know been being drugged through the mud because of their terrible reputation. You know, I would think that you would want a fraternity that you could, I don't know, be proud of. Like, I don't even know. I mean, I don't know why people join fraternities. So whatever but like I really just definitely feel like it needs to be questioned you know if this entire fraternity defend fraternity like defended a guy well a rapist and you know knew about it and helped cover up the case and you know they have this reputation people are still joining you know like I think you need to question you know like you need to think about like how dangerous this brotherhood is honestly and Um, I mean, that was why I wanted to put the article out there was because I wanted to raise awareness, you know, that there was a third case, like everyone knew about the other two cases, but I wanted people to be aware of what happened to me too. Um, just to know that, you know, there's three different cases now at this point, like, are we just going to say, you know, all three of these girls are lying? Like, are all three of these women just like, whatever. So of course, obviously I believe, um, the other survivors, of course, other stories but you know it was definitely like when the stories came out like people still questioned it I mean people even I feel like with the kid being found guilty in student conduct I feel like people questioned you know if I was still telling the truth or not even with like of like basically a court system um deciding he was guilty and so you know honestly the responses to the article were far from what I had wanted them to be they were really difficult for me to take in um Students in Greek life use this, like, online forum, basically, called for Greek rank. Honestly, it's, like, a terrible website. Um, most of the stuff you see on there is pretty, like, just the topics, the way they talk about it, each other. It's very gross, honestly. But anyways, um, you know, I guess because I want to have my feelings <laughs> hurt, I decided to see, you know, I knew that this, once my article came out, I knew it was obviously going to be something that people discussed on there. So, of course, you know... I went to the site and wanted to see, you know, what people were saying, and the comments are really hard to read, because, I mean, really, no one really seemed to care, (laughs) they were kind of just discussing it, in as, you know, this happened so long ago, like, why should we care now, why is she, why is this girl even, like, bringing up this stuff It happened two years ago, you know, people were defending the fraternity, obviously, you know, and, like, Obviously, you know, they were, like, also saying, you know, the other victims were lying, and, you know, they really, and a lot of them honestly just joked about it, like, straight up making jokes about this fraternity and, like, and how, you know, this reputation they have. I mean, people would call them rape TO, like, um, but I feel like it was almost like people would just use, like, this terrible thing about this fraternity as just, like, an excuse to kind of, like, talk shit about them instead of, you know actually genuinely like believing like you know instead of actually like genuinely like hating the fraternity for the right reasons like I feel like they were almost just using our assaults as like basically excuses to hate on them instead of I don't know if this is making any sense but you know I feel like it was people who just kind of hate on this fraternity and now they're like making jokes about how this fraternity like rapes girls is just another you know thing insult to throw their way but like I just... You can tell exactly by reading the comments these people don't give a shit about, you know, the survivors and the people that the fraternity actually hurt. Like, it's so obvious in the way that they discuss it. Um, And, you know, it was hard for me, like, seeing those kinds of responses. But um, on kind of a brighter note, I actually, after the article was released, I learned about another witness in my case um, who I hadn't known about before. And she basically, um, so someone, it was, like, a mutual friend reached out and basically explained that she had been roommates with the girl who had found me, you know, and had lied in her testimony and everything, ATO sweetheart. She had been roommates with the girl at the time, um, of my rape, and because, you know, they were roommates, she had overheard this girl, you know, literally talking about it with her boyfriend and, like, members of fraternity, like, how they were covering it up, and, like, she had heard about it and knew about the time, but was kind of in the situation um, where she didn't know. Hold on one second. Sorry about that, guys. I didn't realize it, like, cuts you off after a certain amount of time. Um, But what I was saying was she, um, so at the time, you know, when she overheard these conversations, she had felt like, oh, wow, like, you know, she knew that they were she had heard about, you know, the ATO covering this up, but then, you know, she also was in this weird position of, like, well, should I say something? Who should I say something to? But then once she saw my article released, um, then she realized, like, oh my gosh, like, um, and once she realized that, um, she had a mutual friend, well, we had a mutual friend together, um, that's when, you know, she reached out and let us know about, um, you know, what she had overheard and everything, and, What I also learned after the article was released was that, you know, I thought that my sexual assault was... I thought no one knew about it, but I was completely wrong. Honestly, I was then told by so many people I knew in Greek life, they had all basically told me, you know, yes, like, we heard about this. We knew ATO, like, we we knew and heard about them um, covering up the rape of a girl freshman year at a... Or not freshman year, whatever, in 2016 at a tailgate. Like, at the time, all these people... Like, in Greek, life, literally knew about it, and, um, and obviously, you know, I was in Greek life, so I didn't really know, you know, what was, you know, being discussed and everything, but it was just crazy to me to know that, you know, like, it wasn't a secret to all these people, you know, they knew about the case, but, and I actually learned that some people did know it was me, um, I had, had some people, um, I had found out that some people I know in actually a different fraternity, they knew that I had been sexually assaulted and everything, and I, I was just very confused about how they knew because I obviously hadn't told anyone, so I knew it had to be coming from, you know, ATO's end, not mine. Um And it was it was kind of hard because I definitely felt like, you know, oh, I'm going to, you know, share my story, put it out there, and, you know, maybe people will be, like, even angrier about this. You know, maybe it'll, this will make people listen, but really it was kind of like everyone was like, oh, yeah, you know, we heard about that already, like, yeah, like, we knew about this, we knew that this girl, you know, was raped, and it was just covered up, like, and, you know, that was kind of hard for me to deal with as well, but, you know, I also know, like, you know, nothing's really, not to take things personally, honestly, Um, and I know, you know, even the people making those comments online or whatever, you know, would probably have trouble, like, saying it to my face, and probably, you know, you know, maybe don't really think about, you know, the survivors seeing comments like that, but, you know, obviously, I mean, hopefully in the future they do. (laughs) Um, But anyways, um, at this point in time, you know, I've finally told my parents about my sexual assault in college, Um, and, you know, they were really proud of me for seeking justice for myself, and, like, shocked at how far I had gotten with my case, honestly. Um, But we then, you know, started discussing other avenues for, like, holding the fraternity itself accountable so um because a criminal case really wasn't an option just because you know the lack of physical evidence besides you know our tes- everyone's testimonies we decided to pursue a civil lawsuit against the fraternity um so my victim advocate actually gave me a list of lawyers to contact and um i reached out to them and it was crazy because when i told her um that i reached out to them she had, she, like, asked me, like, well, how was it, like, how, how were the different people that you talked to, and she had told me that I was the first person who they'd ever given that list of lawyers to who had actually, you know, called the lawyers and, you know, actually looked into, um, you know, getting a case started, which just kind of goes to show, like, you know, how hard it is for victims to, like, keep pushing for that justice for themselves, like, to keep, um, you know, trying to find, you know, avenues for justice, and, like, it was just crazy to me that, you know, that was the case, so, um, we had picked a lawyer, and I, um, I began working with him, um, part of the, one of the things I had to agree to was having all my social media on private, which is why I've had, you know, um, for, like, the past, I don't even know how long, like, over a year, I've had my social media on private, which, like, I'm actually just now starting to put things on public again, you know, as I start this podcast and everything, um, but anyways, so back to, um, talking about the civil lawsuit, so I obviously, you know, initially thought, like, I I was positive I wanted to do this, like, I wanted to hold the fraternity accountable, like, I felt like their organization, like, obviously played a huge role in my assault, and I just, you know, I wanted to find, a way to seek justice for myself because, I mean, yes, I got, yes, the kid was held accountable, but I was seeing, you know, even though this kid wasn't at UCF, you know, the people in the fraternity with these girls still being assaulted, you know, I was obviously worried about, like, you know, what this fraternity is going to continue doing if they're not held accountable. So, um, as, the thing is, you know, the more that we went into the lawsuit with what everything it would entail, I began to feel so trapped, honestly, like, and it started feeling like I was just living, had to live my life in a way like to basically fit this perfect archetype for courts and I mean, I'm sure anyone who's gone through the court system or anything like this knows exactly what I'm talking about um and my lawyer, you know he really wanted to make sure i had I was fully aware of what I was getting myself into, so you know he outlined. me all the different types of questions that they would ask me you know the questions that the other side would ask me um and you know he let he informed me that for a civil lawsuit because you know you're the one bringing it up to the table nothing as far as questions go as far as topics they cover, really nothing is off the table like nothing is private anymore in your life anything literally anything can be asked about anything you know it doesn't even matter how like Pertinent it is to what um, what happened that day. Like they can ask you about your past away before that and everything you've done after, of course. So you know he started going over some of the questions that they would ask me. You um, know, one of the first things they asked was, "Well, how did your rape in college affect you differently than you know the date rape you experienced in high school?" And they said, "You know, you're going to have to make some distinctions about you know how they affected you differently." And the fact that you were assaulted before just really makes things complicated. Um, They, you know, ask questions like, how much did you drink that day? Was heavy drinking typical for you? Have you blacked out before that day? Have you blacked out after? How many times have you blacked out? You know, what's your social media like? You know, everything you have ever posted is open to being discussed in court. Will your post help your case? Will they hurt it? um you know how many men did you have sex with before your first assault how many after how many after your second assault so how many partners total you know oh and we're going to need a list of names by the way and then they'd ask you know are you dating anyone now are you sexually active right now if yes with how many partners with who you know have you ever sent anyone nude photos before how many people when did you send them you know we're going to need a list of names for that as well and you know just questions after questions you know Um, and they asked, are you okay with, you know, they asked, are you okay with being asked questions of these nature, like in depositions for, you know, six, eight hours at a time, you know, are you, how are you going to react? Like, will you be able to maintain your composure? Because, you know, the other side is going to pick judgmental jurors who unfortunately believe your answers to these questions will determine if you asked for it or not. And, you know, I've heard like this kind of example of, having people describe, like, you know, if you were in a room full of people and they asked you to tell the person next to you to, like, describe, like, the best sex you've ever had in your life, it would obviously be very very uncomfortable, um, and, you know, they say, and now, like, imagine you having to describe, like, you being raped, and, like, I feel like it's a very, like, simple, you know, no, like, kind of analogy people use, but, like, it really kind of, goes to speak to like how uncomfortable it is to talk about all these things and to have like literally your whole life like open to discussion and judgment from all these people who will literally decide you know if they think that you deserve this or not and I learned really quickly that there's you know this perfect this archetype for the perfect rape victim in terms of seeking justice for themselves You know, the perfect victim, she speaks up immediately about her assault. She doesn't have many sexual partners. She's not promiscuous. She's never sent anyone nude pictures of herself. You know, she knows better than to drink often and she's very careful, you know, to not drink often anymore, of course. And, you know, she dresses conservatively and she doesn't post pictures showing her body on social media. You know, she's docile and calm and composed. And, you know, she doesn't get angry when you ask, ask her to explain, you know, all the details of how she was violated, or, you know, she doesn't get angry when you ask her to justify every action she's ever taken before or after her assault, and, I mean, I just realized, you know, this, a court would tear me apart for not fitting into this archetype, you know, I took about a year to speak up, a little over a year about my assault, and, you know, I mean, I didn't want my history with men to be an open topic for discussion, and, you know, like, any other woman under 40, I've definitely sent nude pictures before, and I, I, like, really want to be able to post my body and appreciate it without, you know, them being, like, psychoanalyzed by everyone in a court, and, you know, anyone who knows me knows I'm, like, the farthest thing from docile in nature, like, I've never been one, you know, to keep my mouth shut, and to, and my values, the thing, like, my values come, Before anything else for me in my life, you know? And with, you know, going forward in court, I had to ask myself, like, am I really ready to abandon, you know, who I am as a person just to adopt this perfect archetype that's required for court? Like, am I really just gonna, you know, give all this up, completely change who I am for other people, you know, just to have a shot at, you know, holding this returning accountable? And, like, I mean, you have to ask yourself, are you, am I ready to defend every action I've ever taken to convince you know, this judgmental jury that I didn't deserve to be raped? And was I gonna live my life in a way just trying to prove to people that you know, I didn't deserve this, I didn't ask for this. And it just breaks my heart because, you know, like seeking justice for yourself in itself is already so difficult. And, you know, I know so many survivors, like, so many, you know, it just, it breaks my heart how many of us, like, there are out there. And, like, the thing is none of us fit perfectly into this archetype that people wish, you know, victims fit into. And it's sad because I feel like, you know, because we don't fit into this archetype, we feel like, you know, why even bother? Like, why Why am I just going to put myself out there to be, you know, torn apart by a court, you know? And I feel like the truth is really it shouldn't even matter. Like, I'm tired of the world acting as if women must explain why they did not deserve to be raped. And it shouldn't matter if I've had sex with over 100 people or if I was like the biggest bitch in the world. I still shouldn't have to convince anyone I did not deserve to be violated and to literally be made to feel that I'm not even, you know, human. And I mean, one in six American women have been victim of attempted or completed rape in their lifetime. 80% of those victims know they're rapists beforehand. And, you know, students are at an increased risk during the first few months of their first semester in college. And more than 50% of sexual assaults in college actually occur, you know, in those months from August to November, just like my assault did. And... I mean, as much as I wish my case was, like, an isolated case, it's not at all. Like, my case is so far from that. It's just, like, one instance of such a widespread problem on campuses across our country. And, you know, there's fraternities, like, ATO at every school, unfortunately. You know, whether I talk to friends at FSU, UNF, like, you know, schools in even different states, you know, if you ask the kids in Greek life, you know, is there a fraternity that's kind of known as, like, the rapey fraternity, And everyone will tell you, yes, there is. They, there's always one of these organizations at our schools. And even if it's not a fraternity, it could be, you know, a, a team, like, a, whatever, a sports team. Um, but it's, like, these organizations that, you know, you have these members who would literally, you know, they would choose to protect each other um, over, you know, holding their brothers accountable for sexual violence and I feel like it's something that really needs, I mean, of course, it's, like, so many people have shared their story, and I'm, like, so thankful for everyone's, like, spoken out, but I feel like, you know, the more of us who share our stories, like, hopefully, you know, the more awareness we can raise and, you know, hopefully decrease all that stigma, you know, that surrounds survivors, um, you know, like me and so many other people, and it's crazy because even as, you know, even as I make this, it's still very difficult for me, you know, to say the words out loud that I was raped, you know, you would think it gets a lot easier after all the interviews and hearings, but honestly, I mean, yes, it's gotten easier to some extent, you know, I'm actually able to talk about what happened to me now without like, you know, completely breaking down, but it doesn't really necessarily get easier in the sense of feeling like, well, wow, like, this is something that happened to me, you feel like it's something that happens to other people, but, you know, it's happened to me, it's happened to me twice, actually, um, and you know, you really struggle to say word those words without feeling this blanket of shame. But the thing is, I know in my heart, it's really nothing to be ashamed of. And when, and when I look at the survivors, I know I look at them with like such great admiration, like the strength I see, you know, in these women and men really, it never ceases to amaze me. Like I'm, their strength, like is one of the most beautiful things I've seen in this world. And I have to remind myself that, you know, the shame that I feel is really just, like, you know, a consequence, you know, of being, you know, violated against your will, you know, it's it's not a sign of weakness, because, you know, we're anything but weak, like, survivors, like, weak is the last thing you can describe as survivors as, you know, they're some of the strongest people in the world, and, you know... I'm proud to say, you know, yes, this thing happened to me, but it it does not define me. It doesn't define any of us. And yes, it's maybe a big part of our lives. It's shaped my life completely, but you know, it's like a chapter in our stories, of course. You know, it's not it's not the ending. It's not, you know, a prescription for how the way your life the rest of your life has to turn out. And I guess I really want to end this with just saying that you know, that moment when you like speak up and you finally say enough it just it's like it's so powerful and i know you know in this world everyone just kind of wants you to keep it to yourself you know yeah they tell you oh speak up but you know they make it sound so easy when it's really like honestly the most difficult thing i've done in my life um but you know if you're thinking about sharing your story um and you feel ready to i would honestly really encourage you to share it you know share it anyways share it you know even if your voice shakes even if you know they can't truly be held accountable because of the system or, you know, even if not everyone believes you, but I feel like even despite all these things, there's just so much power in speaking up and saying, you know, this happened to me and it was not okay. And it really shouldn't happen to anyone ever. And that was something I remember the director of student conduct telling me, you know, before I went into my hearing, he said, you know, I don't, he's like, I obviously can't speak to how things will turn out. But he said, you know, at the end of the day, regardless of, you know, if this kid's found guilty or not, you came here, you spoke up about this that happened to you and you told you came here and used your voice and said, you know, this is not okay. Like this and that in itself is so powerful. Like I know that, you know, it might not feel too powerful, honestly, but I I promise like it really is because You know, you have, what I learned going into the tearing was, I wasn't alone in that room at all. I felt alone, but, you know, or I I thought I was going to feel alone going into it. But, you know, I kind of came to this realization that every woman who's ever survived sexual violence is literally standing right there with me, rooting for me. And, like, I just want anyone to know, you know, any survivors listening to this to know, you know, I'm here. I'm standing with you, I'm rooting for you, fighting for you too. And you have so many people in your corner who do believe you and who are so proud of you for being here and for, you know, choosing to take on life anyways, despite it all. And like, I also just wanna thank, you know, everyone else who's who's ever come forward and shared their story because honestly, other women sharing their stories really what inspired me, um, the Me Too movement was really huge for me and with inspiring me to speak up um, about what happened to me and then of course you know women like chanel miller um and i mean the list could go on forever they really um hearing their stories was honestly what pushed me to feel you know what i look at these women and i think they're so strong and i feel so embarrassed by this but i shouldn't because you know it's it's a part of me and I'm so much more than this thing that happened to me, like, and I just want anyone listening to this to know, you know, like I said, I'm so proud of you, and I believe you, and will always be rooting for you, and honestly, like, I hope to dedicate, you know, the rest of my life, my career, you know, to helping people like you, and so, yeah, I think that's how I'm just gonna, and things thank you for listening I'm sorry um it was a little longer than I expected it but I just like thank you so much for anyone who took the time to hear my story um and I really hope you guys stay tuned for some of my future episodes love you guys